Our scripture reading for today is from Matthew chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, people do not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. Then the devil took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you are the son of God, he said, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you, and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Jesus answered him, It is also written, Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Then the devil left him, and angels came and attended him. This is the word of the Lord. Last week, we began to talk about character. And it was interesting to me that during one of his morning briefings this week, Governor Andrew Cuomo referred to character. He appealed to what he called our better angels and called us to rise to the occasion and to forge our character. Um, during this challenging time. There's a lot of different understandings and definitions of character, but I think most of them have as their common denominator the assumption that character is more than skin deep. John Wooden, the former UCLA basketball coach, wrote, be more concerned with your character than your reputation, because your character is what you really are, while your reputation is merely what others think you are. And I think most of us, in thinking about character, um, understand that character is forged uh, in adversity, in suffering. And I think it's why the Apostle Paul and James, the brother of Jesus, and Peter and Jesus himself even talk about rejoicing in our adversity and giving thanks. Not because of some perverse understanding of suffering, but the realization that character is that important. It's that important to the quality of our own lives, not just our being quality people, but to the quality of our lives. It's important for the quality of life for those who live around us, that we be people of character. And it witnesses. Um, whatever character we develop during this time will serve the mission of Jesus Christ well and, and better um, if we can seize the day. Um, and, and speaking of character, I, I think of uh, Francis Chan, who is a pastor and author and speaker, and his telling uh, the experience of, uh, of having a missionary in his church one Sunday who uh, served in Papua New Guinea. And at the end of his talk, he said, you know, I wouldn't be in this work except for a youth pastor by the name of Vaughn. Next Sunday, there was another person who encouraged people to sponsor kids in poverty. 
And at the end of his talk, he said, you know, I, I wouldn't be involved in this work except for a youth pastor by the name of Vaughn. And Francis Chan thought that was really interesting. And the next week, there was someone by the name of Dan who came to talk about his work with a rescue mission in the inner city of L.A. And after the service, uh, Francis said to Dan, Dan, you know, this is so interesting, kind of weird. The last couple of Sundays, both of our speakers talked about this youth pastor named Van or named Vaughn and the impact that he'd had on their lives. And Dan says, oh, I know Vaughn. He's a pastor in San Diego now. And he takes people to Tijuana to minister to the kids that are rummaging through garbage in the dump. In fact, I was just with him a couple of weeks ago. And this is what, uh, what Dan said. We would walk in the city and these kids would run up to him. And he would show such deep love and affection for them. He'd hug them and have gifts and food for them. He'd figure out how to get them showers. Francis, it was eerie. The whole time I was walking with Vaughn, I kept thinking, if Jesus was on earth, I think this is what it would feel like to walk with him. He just loved everyone he ran into, and he would tell them about God. People were just drawn to his love and affection. And then Dan said this, the day I spent with Vaughn was the closest thing I've ever experienced to walking with Jesus. Last week, I suggested this sort of operating definition of character, that it's our way of being in the world. Not just our way of behaving, but actually our way of being. It's not just Vaughn's giving gifts and food. It's who he is that obviously radiates something that's attractive, that draws people to him, people who are Christians, non-Christians. And it's our way of being in the world. It's not just drawing apart to develop a, a strong Christian character. It's a way of actually being in the world and influencing the world. Well, last week I suggested that there is this shift in the New Testament or New Covenant from rules and laws to virtues like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience a short list that Paul includes in his letter to the Colossians. I even suggested you might want to memorize those. They're, you can quickly bring them to mind while in a conversation, for example. And then there's that longer list in Paul's letter to the Galatians. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. And I suggested that actually the first three might be thought of a little differently than as virtues, but as vitals. Just as the physical body has certain vitals that we check, like blood pressure and, and, and body temperature. So these three, love, joy, and peace, are indicators of, the, of our well-being, our spiritual and emotional well-being. They, they represent the sort of epicenter of our character. And just as we can't just suddenly decide to lower our blood pressure, we can't just suddenly decide to experience love, joy, and peace. But I did suggest this last week that you note those moments or minutes when you, when you do experience them. Just to say, yeah, I think this is what Rich was talking about. Which raises the question, so why don't we experience these more often? What happens to them when I do experience them? So I'd like to talk a bit about something else today, um, and that's the three viruses 
and I'm not trying to be cute, I think these really function as viruses and it's helpful to understand them in that way. And we all have them. We're all afflicted with them and will be afflicted with them until we see Jesus or will, when he comes back again. But there are ways to deal with these viruses when they flare up. And the good news is that there are antidotes and antibodies that we already have, that we're already equipped with as followers of Jesus who've been born again in his spirit. Now, the three viruses are pride, fear, and despair or discouragement. Just by mentioning those may help you name some of what you have felt at various points during this particular challenge that we're facing right now with, with the coronavirus. The three antidotes hopefully will also be very familiar to you. We find them at the end of Paul's letter to the Corinthians, for example, or his 13th chapter in, in, in his letter to the Corinthians. We find them at the beginning of his letter to the Thessalonians. And, and usually they're in close proximity to one another in other parts of his writings. And those three antidotes are faith, hope, and love. And as Paul says, these three remain. They're a part of us. They're ready to be exercised and used. So let's think for a moment about pride. Um, when we think of pride, we often think of like boasting being proud and boasting about something we've accomplished or something about ourselves. And certainly it can mean that. And you get the sense that the Apostle Paul struggled with this particular virus. It certainly afflicted him before he was a follower of Jesus and was nipping at his heels as a follower of Jesus. And so he would make a point to boast in the Lord Jesus Christ. You know, I boast in the Lord Jesus. But I think the word pride means more than just boasting. And so I'd like to use it to describe what basically I'm, I'm, I'm going to call any kind of self-absorption, being absorbed with ourselves, preoccupied with ourselves, um, obsessed with ourselves. And it doesn't require our being enamored with ourselves, thinking we're great. In fact, a person who may think very little of themselves and struggle with low self-esteem may still be self-absorbed. And so it's so easy to be continually thinking about, okay, what am I feeling now? Am I getting what I want? Am I having fun yet? How are people viewing me? How am I coming across? Am I functioning competently right now? Am I blowing it? You, you know all the possible symptoms and sentences that, that, that come along with this being self-absorbed. In fact, it can be hard to imagine not being self-absorbed. It's that entrenched a virus that afflicts all of us. Well, um, Satan saunters up to Jesus. And, um, yeah, I say saunters up to Jesus. We don't know what actually happened. Did Jesus see a physical being? Did he see some apparition? Was it just a thought that came into his mind and eventually he realizes, you know, I think this is Satan. And at the end says, Satan, get behind me. We don't know what it was actually like for him. And, and you know, I think of that first thought, well, if you're the son of God, turn these stones into bread. That's the kind of thought I can come up with all on my own. But it appeals to Jesus' sense of, or potential sense of pride. Yeah, I'm the son of God. I'm special. I shouldn't have to be going through this. I mean, if the Father really loved me, or 
Yeah, I'm the son of God. I can turn these stones into bread. I'm hungry. Um, I'm not sure I can physically survive much longer. Maybe this is God's test to me. It's the opportunity to finally show what I can do. But so much of that revolves around that sense that I'm special. And if I have power and authority, I should use it. If you're the son of God. And actually the word son of God can simply refer to a king and specifically to the Messiah. And as we look at the history of kings and presidents and emperors in general, or even in the scriptures, it's pretty much just assumed that if you are special, if you're a king or a ruler, you get special treatment. You should live in the biggest, most beautiful house. You should have the best food at every meal. You, should, you can even have as many wives as you want. Um, it's just, and, we, and everybody is kind of okay with that. That's just expected that if you have that power and authority, you should exploit and use it to your own advantage. I was uh, deeply grieved and shocked this week when I heard a report, or read a report that came out uh, about a person, I'm not going to mention his name now, I've mentioned his name before in worship, who I have regarded as, as a person full of the sort of virtues that we were talking about last week, a gentle person, a humble person, a generous person, he recently died, and, and a report has come out that at least six women were, were sexually exploited by this gentleman. And it was over the course of 30 years. And it was uh, connected to spiritual principles like spiritual accompaniment and mystical ideas, and, and maybe in this person's own mind it was all justified. But here are six women who are wounded. And it reminds me that it's so difficult not to use whatever power or authority you have for your own advantage. Whether you are a husband or parent or boss or pastor or president, whatever, it's so hard not to become self-absorbed not to use things for your own advantage. And, uh, and, and fortunately, Jesus doesn't take the bait. You know, one, one way of understanding what's happening here is that Jesus is the new Adam, the new kind of human being, and just as Satan tempted Adam and Eve at the beginning, now he's tempting Jesus, attempting to afflict Jesus with these three viruses. But he doesn't take the bait. He says, a human being shall live by bread alone and not um, by, uh, human being shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And speaking of the word of God, I think of the scriptures. And I've often quoted Rob Bell, who says that if you take all the sin out of the Bible, all you've got left is a little pamphlet. And I think if you look at those sins, almost all of them have, have something to do with pride. And we think of the seven deadly sins, and uh, pride is often at the top of the list. And those seven deadly sins are pride, greed, envy, wrath, lust, gluttony, and sloth. And I think virtually all of them, with the possible exception of sloth, are, are really expressions of pride, of being self-absorbed. And, uh, and so Jesus 
resist that. And as we look at the scriptures, we see example after example of a people living out of that sort of self-absorption and preoccupation. Uh, the writer to the Hebrews says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to discern the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And so if you want to get a sense for how pride works in human nature and in your own nature, be in the scriptures and be honest with yourself. Um, because the scriptures themselves will, will point out the different ways in which pride surfaces in our lives. So what's the antidote? The antidote to pride is love. And a particular kind of love. It's agape love. We might think that the opposite or, or that the antidote for, for pride is humility. And that's sort of the opposite of, of uh, pride. But how do we get there? If, if pride is self-absorption, love, and the specific kind of love that we read about in the New Testament, which is called agape, is being focused on the other, entirely focused on the other. There's kind of other kinds of love, even in the New Testament. There's phileo, which is a, a friendship kind of love, and Jesus had that kind of love with Mary and Martha, Lazarus with his own disciples, with us. But there's another kind of love. It's the love that we see on the cross. It's, it's the kind of love that prompts Jesus to, to call us to share in this meal in remembrance of him and in remembrance of this kind of love. It's a love that is entirely focused on the other. And it's the antidote to pride. I, and I know that some of you have found that there have been moments when maybe you've been so preoccupied with yourself and suddenly you thought of somebody else and, and you decided to reach out to them in some way. Even though the possibilities for helping others are limited in this time, you found some way to make a call, to listen to them, and you found that, yeah, that's liberating. That gets me outside of myself when I'm showing agape, when I'm showing concern for others. So that's the antidote. The second virus is fear. Also a huge issue. I think we would all agree. It's such a huge issue that the most frequent command in the Bible, it happens 365 times, is do not be afraid. It's such an issue. It can be low-grade anxiety or high anxiety, panic, dread. It comes in all sorts of forms and shapes and, and has all sorts of symptoms that affect us, not only spiritually, but mentally and emotionally and even physically. When I was in college, I went on a bike ride, and it was uh, 1,300 miles. We did this ride in 14 days. Had some friends. It was even this family that came along with a, with a fifth grader. We had full gear. Um, it, was a, it was challenging. And about three days into this trip, we hit some really difficult terrain, really steep hills, almost mountains. And remember, there was this one five-mile grade, and it was just brutal. It was late in the afternoon. It was scorchingly hot. We were going against the wind. Actually had to tie a rope to the fifth grader, pull him along. And we got to the top and there was this trucker at the side of the road. And he asked us where we were going. He says, you haven't seen anything yet. You, it's gonna be a lot worse when you get to Oregon. 
and, and we suddenly were filled with fear. We could hardly you know, get through this particular afternoon, couldn't imagine things getting worse. Well, ends up that, that was the most difficult day of our trip. But uh, you know, fear is, is you know, it, takes, it just kind of saps your energy. Now, my guess is that a Satan was just picking up a whiff of fear in Jesus. And we may think, well, you know, Jesus couldn't be afraid. We know he was afraid. He experienced the full range of emotions. We know he was afraid when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane as he approached his crucifixion. He sweat drops of blood. And as we said last week, you know, Jesus knew fear and anger and frustration, but he didn't camp there. He was able to retreat back to that epicenter of faith, hope, and love. But he experienced these emotions. They're healthy. If you're in danger, it's appropriate that you feel fear so that you can decide how you're going to prepare or how you're going to respond. Sometimes this is called acute anger or acute uh, fear. It's, uh, it's, it's in response to a particular uh, event or danger. And then there's chronic fear where the fear or anxiety doesn't subside or doesn't subside completely. It continues even though the event has stopped. And sometimes there's trauma that can trigger that kind of ongoing uh, fear. And this is all very complicated. I'm not suggesting there's any easy solutions to this. But, uh, yeah, Jesus was afraid. And it seems that Satan picked up on that. We don't know the complete conversation that Satan had with Jesus. So often in the scriptures, whether it's an evangelistic sermon or just something that someone says, we're just getting a little snippet of, uh, of the whole conversation or sermon or talk. And, and so, uh, at, but at some point, Satan says, tell you what, let's go to the top of the temple. You jump down and, you know, and he actually quotes scripture. It is written, or it is also written. You quote a scripture, I'm going to quote scripture. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Or I'm sorry, that's, that's what Jesus says. What Satan says is uh, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. So if you fall or decide to jump off the temple, um, he's going to catch you. That's his promise. That's what the word of God says. And then you'll know without a shadow of a doubt that your father cares for you. He's going to give you all that you need going forward. And it's Jesus who says, uh, actually, it's also written that we're not to put the Lord our God to the test. Just yesterday, I was reading in someone's Facebook post uh, about Christians who are saying, you know, we trust God, and we're going to continue to worship together. Um, we're going to not be concerned about being together because God's going to protect us. God's going to take care of us. And the person in this post suggested that they were guilty of what what Jesus is talking about here, putting God to the test. Um, my brother and sister-in-law sent a communication this week, a missionary newsletter about they're getting ready for this virus. And, and it, the, the heading is, we trust God. And there is Sue with a mask. And they talk about the ways they're trying to prepare the Orma people, maybe to stop shaking hands, for example, uh, doing the sorts of things that can make this virus spread. In other words, they're trusting God, but they're also taking precautions. As far as testing God 
in the Old Testament, which is where this particular passage is quoted. It's a part of Israel's journey and trek through the wilderness. And um, they're hungry, and they're grumbling. They're complaining. And as I said to our small group this week, um, anxiety has a short memory. And so God has delivered them. He's fed them. He's given them water out of a rock. He's proven his care for them, that he can, they can trust him. And yet, in this moment, all of that's behind them. They've forgotten it. They're angry. They're complaining. They're grumbling. And it's described as testing God. It's so easy to, to just sort of give up, get frustrated, to grumble, to complain. So what's the antidote to fear? The antidote to fear is faith. Again, it's something we're equipped with. It's a part of our spiritual blood system. Um, it's a gift from God. And we have a choice. Not to change our feeling. Feelings often change slowly. But to choose faith over fear. Jesus chooses faith over fear. The third virus is, uh, is despair or just discouragement. It's what we tend to feel when some adversity goes on and on and on. And it may seem like we've been at this for a while, but it's likely we're just at the beginning. I mean, the physical effects of coronavirus really haven't impacted us very much at all in Schenectady County, for example. I know some of you are in other counties. And, and it, it gets so easy after a while to just begin to despair, to get discouraged. You know, how long is this going to go on? Is it ever going to end? And of course, there's a lot that we don't know about this virus. We're told that there are likely to be waves of it. And it's so easy to be discouraged, to experience despair. Um, I, I, think, I think sometimes what happens when we experience despair or discouragement is we look for a way out. I don't, I don't know what happened with our school superintendent this week in Schenectady. He just resigned. I don't know if he was experiencing this sort of despair, um, this sort of discouragement. I have no idea. My guess is this, this story is much more complicated. If he quit for the reasons he's talking about, then it would seem like he just bailed. <laughs> he just kind of bailed at a time when the school district really needed his leadership. But I'm not here to judge. There's probably more going on than that. But there is that temptation to bail or at least to find some easy escape for a while, whether that's um, pornography, overeating, overdrinking. Well, Satan offers Jesus a way out. You know, Jesus is experiencing 40 days of, of being without food. He's probably a bit worn out from dealing with Satan. And his understanding is that he has some really difficult times ahead. He may already know about his, his death and how he will die. And Satan says, I'll tell you what. You just bow to me one time. This one time. And some of us probably, you know, that sounds familiar. Just this one time. I'm just going to do it this one time. And, and I'll, I'll give all this to you. 
Now we can argue about whether Satan was in a position to do that, but he offers to give all the kingdoms of the world to Jesus. Basically saying, you know, I, I, I know I have a bad rap, but I'm actually a pretty generous person. I'm just looking for a little respect. You bow down to me this one time, show a little respect, I'll just give all of this to you. And Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. He knows at this point, if he didn't know it earlier, this is Satan, get behind me. And Actually, Satan does go, and he quotes scripture again. You shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. With all of these responses, I'm impressed that Jesus doesn't try to impress Satan. There's no pride. There's some real humility here. He doesn't say, I'm going to come up with some really witty, profound parable and just stick it to this guy, showing him my stuff. He just quotes scripture. He's about God, about his Father's will. As he says later, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to complete his work. And so what is the antidote to despair, discouragement? It's hope. And hope is different than optimism. Optimism is this sort of realistic, based upon experience, uh, you know, understanding of what the likely outcome is going to be. So if I get a cold, I'm optimistic that in three days or at least three weeks, I'm going to be pretty much over that cold. I know that from my experience. I can be optimistic about that. Hope is less formed. It's less based on, you know, I know what's happened in the past and this is what's going to happen in the future. It's based on trust, faith in God. That God is good. And as Paul says, for me to live as Christ and to die if I die, that's going to be even better. And before then, Paul says, I trust that everything's going to work together for good. Or as Joseph says, God can use even evil for good. And, and the one good we know he can accomplish is in our character. As Paul says, becoming more conformed to the image of Jesus. And so we don't have to know what the good is. We can just say, but I have hope. I refuse discouragement and embrace hope. And so the three viruses are pride and fear and despair and discouragement. But there are three antidotes. The antidote for pride is love or agape. The antidote for fear is faith, and the antidote for despair is hope. We haven't said mo very much about these antidotes, except to say that we're equipped with them. We have these. These are things we have some control over in terms of choosing to exercise them. They also need bolstering, refueling, um, sharpening, depending upon the metaphor you want to use. And that's why Jesus embraced solitude on a daily basis. He withdrew to be with his father. Clearly, he reflected upon scripture. He talked to his father. He listened. And in so doing, his, his faith and hope and love were refueled. They were strengthened. And, and then there was being with others like Mary and Martha and Lazarus. And some of us this week uh, at 9 o'clock would gather together, and I think all of us would say that our faith, hope, and love were refueled and strengthened by our being together. One person emailed me yesterday, yesterday and said, you know, this week I experienced community in the kingdom of God. So that kind of quality solitude and that kind of being with others where we talk about the things of God, talk about scripture, 
pray together, and that can happen in all sorts of different ways. And, and these are the sorts of things we can do that, that fuel and refuel our faith and hope and love. Well, I hope this has been helpful, and I hope that you will take some time to reflect upon these things. And you know, again, sometimes it's just helpful to name it. That's what I'm finding. Oh yeah, that's pride at work again. Oh, there's fear. Ah, that's discouragement. And there's an answer to that. There's faith and hope and love. Let's pray together. God, you've been so good to us. And so often our anxiety gives us a short memory. Thank you for the scriptures that remind us of your goodness in history and real people's lives. And we know that you're going to get us through this. And that even good can come out of this. We confess that to you now. And may we do our due diligence in naming these feelings, being in your word and with you. And may we, uh, as a consequence, be equipped to deal with these viruses when they flare up. And speaking of viruses, Lord, we want to lift up all the people that are being impacted by the coronavirus, even now. Um, we pray for those at the front lines, medical personnel. Also want to pray for another group of people at the front lines, and that's mothers, parents, who are with their children all day, who are trying to figure out how to work with computers. I talked with a neighbor yesterday. She says, I haven't been at a computer for years. I've got four kids. This is overwhelming. And so I pray for those as well. We pray for those that are grieving because of loved ones that have died and maybe we're not even able to be with their loved one. For those even in our church who weren't able to have a funeral for a loved one because of people not being able to gather. We pray for researchers and scientists and lab technicians their work would be productive to stem the tide of this virus and to make us better equipped to deal with it. We pray for manufacturers of medical supplies and for those who make decisions about these things in the corporate world and in government. We pray that all of us will take up this time and that when we see anxiety in the eyes of others when maybe going down a grocery aisle, we can smile even if they don't smile back, that we can respond to their fear with faith, to their discouragement with hope. We thank you that we can trust you, that we have you. That, Father, your providence and provision can be absolutely trusted. I pray that you will strengthen the faith of my brothers and sisters today and give us what we need to go into another week. Through Christ our Lord. Amen.